Hello, and welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast. I am Ted Newell, your host. The goal of this podcast is to contribute to your success and, in turn, help you contribute to the success of your medtech company. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This is a crazy time to start a podcast with the coronavirus dominating the news. However, there are important things we medical device professionals can be doing in this altered landscape of strategies and tactics for marketing, sales, and operations. So, working in the era of the coronavirus, hopefully a short era, will be the subject of this first season of episodes. Let's get started. Again, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is episode eight. It's about telemedicine, COVID-19, and the future of medical devices, part one, because I will have a part two. Hopefully, this uh, episode nine will be part two. And so first, I'd like to take care of a few subjects. One is that I have been working on the transcripts. For the international listeners, I'm almost done with... um, one transcript, which is the transcript of episode four, which is about the future of medical devices in a COVID world. That seems to be the most popular podcast yet. So um, that transcript will be done shortly and I'll be able to send it out to people upon request. And also pretty soon we'll have the website, the medical device success website will be changed somewhat. So it's easier to find transcripts as I load them up. Second thing is in the past week as I've been listening to other podcasts and studying the market to see where things are going, one podcast that I listened to was about opening up ambulatory surgical centers for ophthalmic surgery. And what was one of the things the experts on this podcast recommended? No sales reps in the ambulatory surgical center or only those that were absolutely necessary, period. So That reinforces another point that we've made in several of the podcasts in the past. That is, marketing is now the key. You need to find new ways to get to your customers. If you are a sales-driven medical device company, like so many small medical device companies are, you need to shift gears and become a marketing-driven company. Make the pivot now and give the sales team the support and the tools they need to succeed. One example is a non-CE webinar that I heard the other day, and it had 1,000 attendees. Now, one of the reasons they had so many attendees is because the doctors in this particular market segment really didn't have much to do at the time. So they were home and had time to listen to a webinar. Also, the speakers of the webinar were terrific and were well-regarded key opinion leaders, And finally, the subject matter was how they're going to open practices in the near future, how you practice during COVID-19, and telemedicine. All very relevant subjects in today's world. But this kind of attendance is unheard of. How would you have liked to be the company that sponsored that webinar? I've got to believe you would have. And that is a marketing tactic. So marketing is important. 
be sure you're thinking about it. And that is a good segue into this episode because we are talking about telemedicine, which is a very popular subject right now. To help us with this subject, we are honored to have telemedicine pioneer Tanya Malik with us today. Tanya is a board director, former CEO, and serial entrepreneur with multiple successful exits and a 25-year leadership success record across health tech and telehealth. In addition to strong business acumen and deep knowledge of regulatory affairs, Tanya's notable expertise lies in bringing innovative healthcare technologies to market and translating vision and strategy into commercial successes. Over the course of her career, Tanya has realized several industry firsts, including first to market with a telemedicine offering and securing the first malpractice insurance for this entirely new category of medical service. Currently, Tanya is the CEO of Virtual Medical Group and is the chair of the Telemental Health Special Interest Group for the ATA, which is also known as the American Telemedicine Association. Tanya, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about being here. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and why telemedicine became such a passion for you? Sure. In 1999, early 2000s, we started building a business where patients and physicians could meet online and receive a treatment plan that included a prescription for minor non-emergent care. In that time, that was very controversial, and we were met with lots of challenges from FedEx wouldn't ship our packages, Visa wouldn't charge the credit cards, pharmacies wouldn't ship it, medical boards uh, instituted disciplinary action against our physicians. It was a very challenging environment. Fast forward 20 years, it's quite commonplace now, but that really launched my passion for telemedicine. And then when the Iraq and Afghanistan war started, the soldiers started coming back and their mental health needs were not being met. And this is an area where perceived stigma is high and the need is great and the access is limited. So I started a company called Cope Today, which was a telemental health company, which means you could get mental health treatment practically every way except sitting in the same room with the person. And I eventually sold that company in 2013 to another telepsychiatry company and rolled on that board and then just rolled off of that. And I'm looking for my next challenge. Okay. And on the way here, in most recently, one of the business initiatives that you had has been the virtual medical group. Can you talk a little bit more about that and anything else you're involved in right now? Yes, Virtual Medical Group, we started again back in 1999, 1998, somewhere in there. And it was the sister company, because it has to be owned by physicians, to the company that I eventually sold in 2014. But Virtual Medical Group is a physician and provider telehealth staffing company. I'm actually looking for someone, if anybody, if any of your listeners are out there, to really step in as the CEO and I would roll off and be the chairman to take it to growth in the next level because I want to go be the CEO of a private equity venture back company in either elder care, um, behavioral health, and or artificial intelligence. Wow. 
Well, I have to say, Tanya, that this is the um, first time we've had a job opportunity indicated in a, in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have to let them get in contact with me, Ted. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I'll help. I'll help them. Because in the show notes, I put your um, your LinkedIn um, uh, profile so people can contact you that way. And I'll put a link to Virtual Medical Group so people will see that and anything else that we think they need. Yeah. So a little while ago, when you and I were talking before we started the podcast, you mentioned that we really need to get into some definitions. And I think that's really important because there's, I think, some misunderstandings about what telemedicine is. So tell us what what is telemedicine and maybe what isn't telemedicine? So basically, telemedicine is as simple as receiving health care through virtual means. And what we say at the ATA, which was formerly known as the American Telemedicine Association, it's not necessarily telemedicine, it's medicine. And it's care in, where, and when you need it. So care is still being delivered to the patient, it's just the medium has changed. And obviously with this current crisis, with COVID-19, telehealth has become in people's minds more than before, but it's been on our minds at the ATA for decades and decades. And are there some areas where it's more practically applied than others? There are. And so let's go back to the definitions just a minute. And and I'm going to just give an overview of the simplest ones, but there's something called the originating site, and that is where the patient sits. And then there's the distant site where the clinician sits. And there are different, a few different types of telehealth or telemedicine, and we'll keep it, we'll keep it pretty high level right now. But there can be asynchronous or synchronous. So asynchronous meaning, well, when you think of telehealth, you could have when you think of telemental health, you could have the patient recording themselves and then sending it to their mental health counselor, who then reviews it and sends a video back. So asynchronous, not at the same time. And then, of course, you would have synchronous, which most people are very familiar with now with Zoom, and this is how they're working, and this is how we can deliver care. So those are some basic definitions. And so when we started our company in 1999 or so, when you think of primary care, what walks through a primary care office, about 30 of the top conditions can be done online. When you think about things like skin conditions, dermatology, you can see via the video what's happening with the screen, uh, common cold. There are other things that can be done in primary care, but I want to stretch your imagination to thinking about natural disasters and how we can beam in in places that are devastated, but still you can take the internet in certain parts and be able to deliver care in those really catastrophic situations. And then I also want you to think about what's new and coming down the pike, and especially since COVID-19 with speech pathology being online, maybe things you wouldn't have thought about before, teleophthalmology. That's a, a new intelledentistry. There's a whole, there, there's a lots of things we could talk about and even telephysical therapy. Wow. Wow. One thing when I was researching for this and preparing to talk to you, I came across the term remote patient monitoring. So what's the difference between telemedicine and remote patient monitoring or do they overlap? Well, they are 
kissing cousins. So remote patient monitoring, think about that there's a device involved. So whether it's a digital scale and people are being monitored for their weight or something for their heart, or right now so many of us are wearing Apple Watches or Fitbits or things like that, that would be a part portion of remote patient monitoring. And then those the data is sent to the physician who can review it, physician or other provider who can review it and then institute a telemedicine consult to discuss those results if they want. But when it comes to reimbursement, those are different codes from CMS, and CMS has has really put their endorsement behind remote patient monitoring because that is a way that you can lower cost. Obviously, if you can monitor remotely before your patient enters into the ER or to the doctor's office with conditions that are exacerbated, then you can save costs if you can prevent that. Okay. So that's interesting that you talk about Fitbit or Apple Watch or any kind of a smartwatch. I do have a benign AFib, and mm-hmm. so it only comes up once in a while. But it's sort of interesting when my watch tells me what's going on. Yes, and so if that were going to a provider, too, and you you said it's more benign, but if it is something that needed to be monitored continually, then that would get to a provider who would be able to manage your health remotely, which is fabulous and saves everybody money, time, pain, concern, anxiety, stress, lots of things, lots of benefits to that. Now, where do you think telemedicine's going? I mean, what is the new landscape? Obviously, COVID-19 really turned things on because at least in the United States, you know, we had uh, CMS change um, a lot of its regulations and HIPAA requirements and so on and so forth. So coming out of COVID-19, where do you think telemedicine's going? Yes, let's talk about that. I mentioned that we've been talking about this for decades at the ATA. For telemedicine advocates, the things that we have been asking for for years, we basically got in two weeks or even shorter when COVID-19 happened. Wow. It was jaw-dropping for us because we had been met with a lot of resistance. And then all the restrict not all, so many of the restrictions were were lifted. And so let's talk about the primary ones for a second. I mentioned the originating site earlier, meaning that's where the patient is. Before COVID-19, the patient's home was not one of those, or in rare circumstances was the patient's home one of the, was allowed to be an originating site. Of course, now with COVID-19, the patient's home can be an originating site. So that is a change that we would hope remains post-COVID-19. It, there's so many, and I can go into all the reasons for that, but people are seeing now the reasons and feeling it. And, and what we have been hearing anecdotally is patients saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying I could have done this before? Or I can do this, can I do this going forward? It's something that the patients have wanted. And so our stumbling blocks to the adoption of telemedicine has been on the provider or the patient side. And now the providers, of course, were really forced into this to do it quickly because they were losing revenue and they wanted to stay in contact with their patients. There's one group that I interact with that works with 
13,000 physicians. Within the first week of COVID-19, 70% of them started telehealth. 90% of them did it with a solution on their own. So that, that stat alone makes you wonder how many people will stick with it if they had, if they just immediately came up with a quick Zoom solution, because the real challenges are workflow. But let me go back to what was happening, what's happened with COVID-19. 40 plus states have waived license restrictions. So I sit in North Carolina and our governor has said, we welcome other providers now. That has long been a challenge for the telemental, for the telemedicine industry. They've waived an in-person requirement for the Ryan Haight Act, which is just, it's something in particular that we have been fighting for for a really long time. And they've added coverage for about 80 additional services. So like I mentioned, speech pathology and physical therapy, they now can get reimbursed from CMS for doing their care, which they wouldn't have been able to do before. And then you mentioned HIPAA. That's right. HIPAA is waived and you still have, to have good faith with HIPAA, you can't go on Facebook and say, Tanya Malik's your patient and things like that. But good faith efforts to protect privacy and security will be honored. But there are still state and other privacy laws that people should need to watch out for. But these are big changes that happened as a result of COVID-19. Big changes. We're excited about them. And now you're going to ask me what you think is going to stay, Right. In just a second, but for my, uh, we have a lot of international listeners, believe it or not, um, it's, this podcast has been listened to in over 60 countries. Um, so I just want to explain to them that when I talk about HIPAA, that's an acronym for a privacy law here in the United States uh, that all providers, both doctors and clinics and hospitals must abide by to protect privacy. And the reason it was important that that was waived is because you cannot build privacy management options into Zoom or FaceTime or some of these virtual uh, systems that the doctors are using right now just to fill the gap. And but and you and I will go there in a, just a couple seconds, you know, to talk about it. But yes, let's keep going. So we think, uh, well, at the ATA, we have hashtag cement the gains because this has been a lot of gains for us and we are working hard to collect data and success stories so that we can cement the gains. One of the ones I personally believe won't stay is HIPAA. I think they will, uh, CMS will reinstitute enforcement of that once COVID-19 is done. Uh, What will The other requirement that we're going to push hard to submit is the patient's home as an originating site. We would like that one to stay. Now, the license restrictions, they are probably going to go back since the practice of medicine is is a state state jurisdiction. And then they will probably cut back on the number of uh, the different types of providers that can be reimbursed. So we hope to submit some of them. Uh, We know we won't be able to submit all of them, but just the radical sea change that has happened since COVID-19 for telehealth will be good for the industry as we show the success stories and the metrics and the data. Now, in the United States, are there some states that have agreements, uh, cross-border health agreements, so that, you know, somebody could practice, a doctor practicing, let's say, 
in Raleigh, North Carolina, could help a patient in Richmond, Virginia? Well, there are some states that have that that are close together, like New York, New Jersey, some reciprocity. But you still would have to uh, register or or do something with that state's medical board. There are about 12 states that have a special telemedicine license, and that is to streamline the licensure process so that more physicians can practice throughout the country. There is a Federation State Medical Board compact that is not active yet, but the nurses, they do have a compact and they can move, uh, they can work between states much easier. And then if you work for the VA, the VA has lessened those restrictions so that you can get care. They call it care anywhere, care anytime, I think, something like that. So there is precedent for loosening the license restrictions, but again, I'm not sure that that will remain after COVID-19. You know, it'll be interesting to see what pressure the public brings to bear on this because one of the studies I had seen coming into this conversation, which was a study based in mid-March, indicated that about 80% of the public did not know they had access to telemedicine, but a large number of people were very interested in it. And I just think about one of my daughters who has three children and she hates going to the pediatric uh, doctor because she has to take all the kids with her. She doesn't have somebody to watch the other, the two that aren't sick at home. And she walks into a place where there's other, you know, kids that have um, illnesses, even though in, in the practice they do try to separate them by with different doors and such, but still it's a, it's a it's a virus or mm-hmm. you know illness rich environment and she had her first uh, telehealth uh, meeting the other day with her pediatric doctor and for one of the kids she thought it was great and so i've got to believe that other people will have similar experiences and there will be some pressure on the doctors to to accept it and to support it Exactly. And you're taking me back to one war story where I was in front of the Texas Medical Board and getting, this was again early 2000s, and getting met with a lot of resistance from the doctors. And in Texas, you have, I think, two public members. And so one of the public members was a mom, just as you described, like your daughter, three kids living in Natchitoches and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Are you telling me that I don't have to load my three kids up in the van and take them all to the doctor when I know it's an ear infection and I can do this online? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She goes, this is fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the people who I, to your point, maybe pushing this forward, that may be the genie out of the bottle. And so let me just give you a little bit of anecdotes. So we've got one hospital and spectrum out of, that's in Western Michigan. Well, they're more rural hospitals. Mm -hmm. So they started, when they started doing, they had been doing telemedicine for some time. So after COVID-19, they were doing about three or 400 visits pre-COVID. After COVID, 2,300 a day in the rural-based. And then two more stories. One uh, one group was doing 10 virtual visits a day and went to 10,000 a day. <laughs> and then another group, Northwell, they had about 300 doctors and doing a few hundred visits since COVID-19, 
thousand doctors are on and they're doing about 1500 to 2000 visits a day. I mean, so that is a sea change. So how it can't start one day and then automatically stop the next, right? Isn't there going to, there's going to be some adoption that happens with people like your daughter and other people elderly where it's hard to get out people who are in the sandwich generation like me who are looking after kids and their parents. And if they could, if I could have more telehealth visits for my mom and stepdad, that would save me in a tremendous amount of time. So it, now that people are waking up to that telehealth is a real option, it can really be a mainstay. I've got to believe that telehealth for the elderly will, will put a lot of pressure on the medical community because these people will not want to go to doctor's offices or go into hospitals mm. if they can help it, you know, due to concerns about COVID. Um, so yeah, I think there will be some public health, but so right now you and I just talked a minute ago about the exceptions that were made, especially for the privacy laws. And I'm sure this is going on all around the world. And so uh, practitioners and patients can use zoom, FaceTime, Skype, some of these other virtual platforms to communicate but to really make it effective for the long term, what tools and systems need to be in place? I have a friend who gives a presentation and he says, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. As this becomes adopted going forward, it's highly recommended that you make the investment into the software to do it so that you are with a reputable vendor who will sign a BAA and for your international uh, listeners that's required here once HIPAA is instituted again. So the software is key, but the other things that are really key are your operational workflows. And so you'll have to incorporate it. And this is what's happening with COVID-19 is I saw today, somebody said, well, three years of planning is implemented in three weeks, right? It's making all of these challenges be, right in front of your face and fixed immediately. So operational workflows will be figured out, um, how you incorporate it with your EMR and so that billing is done and the notes are taken, but none of these are, are too hard to accomplish. And I would say you just take bite size, each one of them, and you'll be able to implement it seamlessly, effectively, efficiently, and provide quality care. And what do you think about the devices that will have to be available to help in this um, telemedicine effort? Well, your your industry has a big opportunity here because uh, there are limitations, of course, and the medical device industry could really fill a gap here, be able to do the peripherals that make it easy for the consumer to provide the data to the doctor so that more visits can be done online. To your daughter's example, so the otoscope. Uh, and we already have we already have a lot of these. We've got the virtual stethoscope, um, a lot of other things, but we don't really have them in a direct consumer packet where you can say, um, that your payer will say, we want to encourage you to do virtual visits and, and here's your virtual visit peripheral package. There's an opportunity. I'm on a strategic advisory board for someone who is really uh, going behind the thermometer with a multimeter that can detect 
lung sounds, so pneumonia and other things, heart rate, temperature, but it, but it's like a thermometer. So people won't be afraid of it. So to your industry, whatever you do has to be easy, user-friendly, and of course, um, be able to provide the data to the physician that they'll need. Tanya, this has really been terrific and very helpful for not only me, but the listeners. Is there, are there any other thoughts that you have that we should consider before we wrap this up? I would say your industry in particular maybe hasn't always been at the table when we talk about telehealth. Maybe parts of your industry have, but I'd love to be able to call on your listeners as we try to cement the gains as we move forward post-COVID. Super. Well, Tanya, thanks so much for being with us today and helping us understand uh, telemedicine and where it's going. And as this continues to develop, I I guess I reserve the right to ask you to come back uh, sometime (laughs) in the future for another interview. Oh, I'd love to. I've enjoyed it. And thank you very much. Okay. Now we understand the basics of telemedicine and remote patient monitoring and what it may mean to the medical device industry going forward. We understand the great changes taking place in this arena due to the pandemic and the data shows that this is here to stay in some form and will only grow. Now, at the end of every podcast, we have an immediate impact idea that you can implement today or tomorrow. Today's idea is to go to the websites of the major specialty organizations that involve the doctors and healthcare providers you do business with. Look for the guidance that they have published to their members on practicing during the pandemic. You need to know this as it may affect the way your company interacts with these same healthcare providers. For example, one of the recommendations of one organization is that practices tele-triage patients before they come to the practice. And the same organization suggested that patients wait in cars, if there is a parking lot, until they are notified to come to the door. How is a sales representative going to work in this environment? You need to understand the potential new obstacles. So do this soon, if you haven't done it already. All right, now it's time for all of us to go to work. Remember, show notes have important links. Thank you very much for listening. Please rate and share the episode. Feel free to send comments, questions, and ideas. Now go win your week.